Welcome to Unveiling Apocalypse, a podcast about the book of Revelation. Okay, welcome everyone um, to our second interview with Robin, Robin Whitaker. So thank you for being here once again. Um, I won't read your your whole bio again, uh, since I assume that anyone who is listening has listened to the previous episode with you. But thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, so... We, we, we kind of left it um, with, with a few questions at the end um, of our previous episode. So let's talk a little bit about, um, well, what shall we talk about? Well, I wonder if we need to revisit the very basic sense of what an apocalypse is. Yes, that's a good idea. Partly because when I teach this text, one of the very common assumptions out there, uh, both in church and the wider world, if they know about the book of Revelation, is that it's predicting the future. Yes, uh, Locusts and yeah, yeah, that's right. Pandemics, and, yeah, you know. pandemics. You know, um, Barack Obama. Yeah, all, all these things. And and Christians have, or some Christians have read the text like that for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Middle Ages, yep. people again were saying this. These are things predicted in the Book of Revelation. The you know Crusades, the wars, various things. But I don't know if you agree with this, Ewan. But I I don't think it's about predicting the future at all. Mm. Um, it's about unveiling what the present world looks like. I, I personally, I tend to kind of oscillate between two things, yeah. <laughs> depending on, on, on what side of bed I get out of each morning. Okay. Um, I, I, I definitely always see it as, yeah, an unveiling of the present reality for the first century audience. Mm-hmm. I do also see, though, um, and, and probably I think you would probably agree with me here, but I, I do also see not necessarily predictions, but prophetic ideas that of what oppression and evil and kind of systemic issues look like mm. that repeat themselves throughout human history. So it, in one sense, it is a bit about the future, but not in the way that we make it out to be. Yeah, and I would agree with that. It's Because it's about unveiling a, a current world and the evil and uh-huh. the way evil and injustice functions in that world. But there is a timelessness to that. Yeah, By tying Rome back to Babylon you know, another ancient empire hundreds of years before who depressed God's people, this author is sort of pointing to a, the way that evil and injustice works throughout time and place. So there's yeah. a timelessness to it. Yeah, and these are sort of universal principles that I think, well, I mean, I don't want to speak for Jewish people, but these are Jewish and Christian principles very much. Yeah. So the opposition of evil and so on. So, yeah, I think it is future-minded, in the sense that these things, these problems will always be there. And, and yep. our response to them, I think John is suggesting, should be the same. Yep. Yep. It's just that the context shift and so the way we do that is always a little bit different. Yeah. And and there, I don't mean to suggest there's no sense of future because clearly uh-huh. there's a vision of the end. Of, oh, yeah, that. Of, yeah, yeah, that thing at the end, the last <laughs> few chapters. Um, of the new Jerusalem, of what, what harmony and people living in harmony uh, with God looks like that again it's not predictive about this will happen in a certain sequence but it is casting a vision of of what lies at some point yeah. at the end of time so it, it has a future dimension but I think it's not about saying in the year you know yeah, yeah. 2035 <laughs> these three things will happen or, or you know as um, like you were saying in the middle ages right you know in the year 1500 yeah that's right <laughs> that's one of my favorite ones you know um, that that we've been well, humans have been predicting the end based on Revelation for 
2,000 years and we still yeah. haven't gotten it right. <laughs> yeah, we, we keep getting it wrong. Somehow. Yeah. That should, hasn't stopped us from trying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So obviously then Revelation is about the future, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's all the wisdom we have well, to offer. There you offer. go. You know, that, that's all you need to – you heard it here first, everyone. Yeah. Uh, but why, why do you think people are so fascinated with trying to predict the future out of the text? Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, sh- sh- have you ever been tempted to do that yourself? Not really, I have to say. But when I, when I see other people doing it out of a sort of a genuine – desire to make sense of the world, I think it is about control. And I, I don't mean that yeah. negatively. Yeah. I think when we see bad things happening and we want to give a reason to it, to sort of say this is part of God's plan and this was predicted in this way is kind of a way of telling ourselves God's in control yeah. and and it's all in hand and, and, and that, that makes it okay. So, so what you're saying then is that by, by creating a set of predictions – or a roadmap, if you like. Yeah. That makes someone feel like, you know, yeah, you know, someone's, someone's got this all in hand. Yeah. I don't have to worry as much. And so it's almost cathartic in a sense. Yes. And, I mean, there's a sense that that's kind of what John's saying, which is God does have this in yeah, hand. Yeah. Um, so there's a sense that that's the way the text does work on people, but not quite in that predictive. If, if we're starting to pick dates and name sequences of events, I think we're missing mm. the way this text works. Because, of course, you know, in the tradition I grew up in, you need the charts. Yes. <laughs> the big, long, you know, the long timeline. Yep, yep. That, that, that kind of predict everything. And, and you know, I, I laugh about this, but it's important, I think, for scholars like ourselves to remember that a lot of the people who do these things, like you mm. say, you know, they do so with the best of intentions. That's right. Not to, you know, well, sometimes to scare people a little bit, <laughs> but, you know, because they are genuinely seeking God's heart as well. So it, it's important for us not to be too snobby about that, I think, at times, because mm. we, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, hole up in our <laughs> academic, yeah. academic ivory tower and be like, haha, look at everyone else. Yeah, that's not what this does. But yeah, I think it is, it can often be motivated by good reasons to try and understand what's going on. And part of that is our discomfort with living with, you know, no answers or, or seeing suffering or experiencing suffering and wanting to cry out, which is also yeah. here in this text, as we talked about in the previous episode. You know, how long, oh Lord, why, why is this happening? But that's an uncomfortable space to be in. Yeah. So we look for the hard and fast answers. One of the, the, the struggles I always have, of course, is um, trying not to denigrate <laughs> future predictions too much, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, be, be, because people do, some people, you know, hold them to be quite, valuable or helpful mm-hmm. in, in particular times. But, you know, as, as a scholar, we, we, we tend to kind of push beyond that mm. in the sense that we're kind of saying, well, let's bring it back to the context of the first century. So we've talked a little bit already about how the first century audience would have understood it. Do you think that for them, depending on where you date the text, obviously, but do you think for them there is this sense of future prediction in how they might have read it? If if there was, I would say it's immediate future. So I think this is true for large parts of the New Testament is that it's clear in Paul there was this sense of anticipation that Jesus was going to come back soon. Mm. So the language of, of endurance and persecution, it was always understood to be temporary because Jesus would, Jesus would be coming, you know, coming back. And, and we see within the New Testament different ways people 
deal with that as they realise there's, you know, now a few generations have passed and, you know, Jesus hasn't come back so let's get on with the business of being Christian and what does that look like and what does that mean for how we behave and all of that. So I think it's, it's not implausible to say the first recipients of this, you know, when you've got an author talking about stay faithful, you know, God will reward you in this kind of way, that they are thinking of that as something that might have happened within their lifetime or mm-hmm. within a few decades or something like that. And I guess that's maybe the hard part of being a Christian 2,000 years on is we have to deal with the fact that some of those things haven't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, you know, for, for me, I, I kind of look at the text sometimes and I think, you know, if I'm sitting there and either Jerusalem is about to be destroyed or Jerusalem has been destroyed, mm. surely there's a sense of urgent immediacy yeah. in hearing this. Yeah, like like you say, you know, it, it, it's difficult to imagine what it would have been like sitting in that space, waiting, but nothing happens. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. But I, I do think even then there's a difference between living as a Christian with hope that anticipates God doing something uh-huh. and predicting specific things on a timeline. Okay. Like I would I sure. would want to. And it comes back to what we think prophecy is about too. This, yeah. this author talks about his words as prophetic. Mm-hmm. So I think he frames them. He sees himself standing in that long generation of biblical prophets. But if we look at biblical prophets, even in the Old Testament, again, they're rarely predicting things. Mm. So we, we think of prophecy as, you know, very predictive, but um, in, in, I guess, popular culture. But prophecy in the Bible is often about pointing out the consequences of your actions mm. if you do this or a word from God calling people to repentance. And all of those types of prophecy are there in the book of Revelation. So, I mean, like the way I understand it is, you know, usually prophecy exposes injustice. Yeah. yeah I mean, that might be, you know, one, one aspect of it, certainly. Mm. Mm. And prophecy as I say to my students quite a lot, is good prophecy is fulfilled more often than once. <laughs> it, it, it just never how you expect it. Yeah. You know, in that, you know, inevitably justice does overcome all odds <laughs> somehow. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, so what you're saying then is that we need to retool our understanding of prof- prophecy from being about X, Y, Z will happen on this day. So we're not Nostradamus. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. But but more, it's a broader sense of, you know, addressing what's wrong. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and a large part of prophecy, like apocalyptic, is kind of speaking truth to power. Yep. Naming, naming the injustice, pointing out the consequences of people being on a certain path. Yeah. So I think we have to have the a proper biblical understanding of prophecy as well as a proper biblical understanding of what an apocalypse is mm. to kind of get that this text is doing that unveiling of the way the world is, unveiling what God is doing. And yes, there are future aspects that inspire hope as well as consequences. If you don't repent, this is what this is what the future is going to look like for you. Uh-huh. Uh, but not not in that very predictive way it's often understood in popular culture. So if we, if we talk about that then, mm. the the natural, I think, consequence of that then is judgment, yep. isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we, we also find ourselves in a little bit of a bind because a lot of Christian readers will read the text and start pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. Well, alternatively, I, I've had the opposite where um, people new to the text will read it and kind of go, oh, I don't want any part in this because it's very judgy. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do we how do we manage that? 
Just a small question. (laughs) Just a small question. Look, I I do think for the most part in Revelation, one of the things that distinguishes it from prophetic literature is the judgment is primarily on those outside the faith. Mm -hmm. So in in prophetic texts, and it took me a while to sort of figure out this distinction, but in prophetic texts, for the most part, prophets are saying to the people of Israel, repent, you have sinned. Mm -hmm. This is what you've done. You've committed idolatry. You've strayed from God's commandments. And so it's a very internal critique. Uh calling people back to faith. When we get to the later apocalyptic texts, we see it in Daniel, Book of Revelation, the main threat to the people of faith is outside the faith. Mm-hmm. And so evil gets evil and sin gets located there. Now, so in the Book of Revelation, I'd say most of the calls to repentance in those sequence of judgments are to those not in the faith. It's repent and come back mm-hmm. to God or repent. Now, that's not to say there's no responsibility for Christians, right, for Jesus' followers. They are called to be faithful, yep. to correct themselves when they've strayed, um, if they're being lukewarm, <laughs> um, <laughs> to uh, sort out their priorities and, you know, not be complacent mm-hmm. about faith. So it doesn't mean there's no judgment on people of faith. But I think the, the emphasis in this, sh- in this text is a bit different. Although in, in our previous episode we talked a little bit about um, Prod Jezebel <laughs> and, and the <laughs> yes. church, right? And, and this yep. sense that there is almost inter-church judgment. Yeah, that's true. Mm. So is that something that you know we, we, we need to kind of deal with as well? Yeah, the, I mean, those in chapters two and three, those messages to the seven churches, there is some harsh teaching there about if you don't do this, these will be the consequences. Mm. So I think the text there is offering a pretty strong warning, I would think of it. Uh Um, Maybe more than judgment, but a warning of consequences. If you continue on this path, you've strayed and and you will be be punished. You'll end up with that other lot who God's going to judge. Which which is very hard. I mean, we we, we tend to be quite... Well, we like our Christianity to be a bit universalistic at times, don't we? Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, yes, everyone can come in and, you know, all all are welcome and, and so on. But Revelation, well, at times seems yeah. to be really clear that that's not the case. Yeah. And look, I mean, this might, I'm just going to now say things that might sound like heresy to some people. <laughs> uh, there are places in the text where you get a vision of who who seem to be saved, like the 144,000 mm. that seem incredibly narrow. If you just read that verse or two, it, it limits salvation incredibly tightly. But of course, immediately in that scene, there's also a great multitude. Yeah. But I think when you get the end of the text, depending how you read the sequence and whether you take the chronology, it kind of circles round in the judgment scenes in chapters 19 and 20 and 21. There's a case to be made that ultimately there is universal salvation offered to people mm. so or the possibility of salvation even after judgment and death. It's, it's hard to know, but it's possible. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things that I keep coming back to in the text is that there's two judgments yeah. Right. And one of them has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Christian and a good follower. It's, it's mm. about what you do. Yes. But then also at the end of, as we said previously, right, at the end of all time, there's still people outside who are floating in and out and the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. Yeah. So there is a but, door left open, if you like. Yeah. I think that's the confusing bit. It's it, it seems like it's really clear at one level who's in and who's out. And yet there are clearly some people on the fringe who, who yeah. 
the door the door being left open is a good image. <laughs> or when God closes a door, he opens a window, quite literally <laughs> in this sense. <laughs> yes, that's right, in this text. And the, the other thing to say in that, I mean, there's pretty vivid descriptions of hell yep. or what we might broadly call hell. The language yep. here is of abyss or there's a lake of fire, there's second uh-huh. death, there's various, again, we're in the world of images and metaphors. Mm. But it's worth noting that the harshest judgment, the only group who are described as being tormented forever and ever in that very classic kind of idea of hell as a place of torment <laughs> is the dragon and the beasts. Yeah. The, so the it's, perpetrators of evil. Yeah, like. the embodiment of evil, mm. not the not even the people who followed them. Mm. They aren't tormented in the same way. So there is a distinction between the kind of, yeah. So so then what happens to the people who, well, who, who don't make it then? <laughs> they just Ooh. disappeared to oblivion? Or uh, what, what does the text say? Well, the text, I think the text really talks about a second death. Uh-huh. So it imagines a grand resurrection where everyone has to kind of face up to God. Uh, and then they're judged, as you say, by their deeds, which I think is probably why some of the reformers like Luther hated this text because it wasn't <laughs> about faith alone. It was about works, um, that somehow your deeds condemned you. And then it talks about those who aren't in the New Jerusalem going to the second death. So one argument could be saying that, you know, it's either resurrection to life with God or it's just death. It's life or death. Those that, you know, and, and I guess it a, as a symbol, being with God equals life. Yeah. If you, but then as we've said, you then keep reading in the New Jerusalem and there are these people outside the gates. <laughs> so where did they come from? <laughs> and all of that says to me that we can't, Again, read this too literally. Yeah, and, and and to me, it's it's always a caution against being too drawing our boundaries too narrowly. Yeah, you know, because we like to do that, don't we? You know, yeah, as, we'd as like to know who's like here's our tribe. <laughs> yeah, you're in, you're out. Yeah, we do that around a number of key issues. Or that's yep. right, you know, and you get to throw stones at everyone who doesn't agree with you. <laughs> yeah, but apparently, in the text of Revelation, which I mean, a lot of us draw our conceptions of heaven and hell from that, mm. rightly or wrongly. Mm. Even that remains ambiguous at some level. I think it does. I, I think um, there's rich imagery here that has definitely informed the tradition, particularly art and Dante's Inferno, and they've taken on a life of yes. them, their own. Dear old Dante. Yes, well past what Revelation perhaps <laughs> intended. But the text itself, I think, is ultimately ambiguous and, and doesn't give us any hard and fast answers, which is probably a good thing. It, th- it's, it's a tense place to sit. Yeah. But I think it's probably important for us to be able to Mm. reach a point where we're able to sit there, perhaps. I think so. Mm. And it's worth noticing what it does affirm. So um, when I teach Revelation, I often start with like all the myths about Revelation that are wrong. (laughs) And (laughs) one of them is that people often think the concept of a rapture is from Revelation and there's no rapture here. There's no beaming up to the sky with Jesus. There is an image of heaven and God's kingdom coming down to earth. And again, even if we read that as a symbol rather than an an actuality, I think the theology is profound Mm. in terms of this this is a radical affirmation of human beings and life on earth and this planet and that God desires to be with us on this planet. So it's it's an affirmation of materiality. Well, that's right. And, And it means that, you know, we can hopefully begin to move beyond this whole the earth will be burned up anyway, so why, why bother looking after it kind of theology? Yeah, exactly, which has also been read into Revelation, right? Yeah, yeah that for sure. We don't have to care about it 
and or God will fix it all so we can do what we like to the earth. But <laughs> I, I don't think it's an excuse to be to do nothing. Yeah, well, that's or, right. Or be wasteful. Yeah. I mean, the way I explain it normally is with the rapture language that we find in like Thessalonians mm. and in other places. I go, well, it, it's it's that practice of going out to welcome the king as he enters into the city. Mm. Right, you know the whole the whole town comes out, and we see it in Jesus. Right when when he when he um, triumphantly enters Jerusalem, yeah, everyone comes out and they you know throw cloaks and palm fronds on the ground and whatnot. And I go, imagine if God's visiting, like you're going to stand in your room and wait for him to come in. You go out, you, you know, go hey, out, God, come and, in, yeah, you know. But you've also tidied your house up a little bit <laughs> so that you know God's not seeing all your dirty plates and whatnot. And yeah, I, go, well, I like that. Wouldn't that be the same for us in theory? You know, on, on the earth. <laughs> Yeah, and you wouldn't so. and wouldn't we want to actually say to God, look how well we yeah. looked after this beautiful planet you gave us and told us to care for in Genesis? Yeah, mm. but I, I like that image. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's helped me a lot. Anyway, so here's a weird one, right? <laughs> and something that a few people have asked me, and I don't really know how to answer to be honest. So I thought <laughs> I'd, I'd write it at you and see what you say. Okay, what happens? What do you do in heaven? <laughs> Ooh. Because people have asked me, and I'm like, well, I don't think it's like you sit there on a cloud and play your harp badly all day. No. But what, you know, is there a picture being offered of what happens or, or not really? Because there's, well, yeah. there's definitely worship. Yep. There's some worship in heaven, which always makes me giggle when I read it because I had it. My grandmother was a very staunch Baptist her whole life, teetotaling Baptist, went to church every Sunday. And as she got older and she started talking to us about, death and there was one day she also had a bit of dementia so she'd sometimes say things she would never have said before and one day she said to me I don't want to go to heaven and I was like oh that's a bit strange (laughs) and it was because she thought that sitting around having to sing Baptist hymns all all the time was going to be really really boring (laughs) well well, that's kind of the sentiment of the question (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but so there is worship there's I mean it's hard to know what people are doing here except it's it's a city Mm. with a garden and there's a tree of life with leaves for healing and there's water. In some ways, one assumes that if it's a city, well, maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I have wondered whether there's still work to do. Mm. Well, it, it, it's, well, maybe not obviously, but there does seem to be an evocation of Genesis. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's clearly like ploughing and tending and yeah. aiming of animals to be done, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you like. Yes, because in that Eden vision in Genesis two and three, you know humans have work to do. It's part. It's part of being human is sharing in God's labor. Mm. So I don't know what that looks like, though. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's um, fair. I, I guess yeah. uh, it, it's important though to say that there is stuff to do. Yes, it's not just sitting around singing hymns. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> There'll be a lot of people to meet, things to do. Well, that's right. And and. I mean, and I, I do think Genesis is very clearly evoked here because the text is quite clear that there there isn't a temple because the temple was always in Jewish tradition a kind of a stand-in, if you yeah, like, a, a place temporary. where you could go to meet God because you couldn't be fully in God's presence yet. And so we do return to that idea of a God who walks around and you can see God face to face. That's the that's actually the returning to the idea of the, the visual aspects of the text. I think the yeah. ultimate promise is you see God face to face, which is a way of talking about having profound intimacy with the divine. Then let, let me let me ask you a bit of a random question, but comes out of that. Then, <laughs> yeah. what what do the Greeks and the Romans have to say? Because it's is it like Mount Olympus or not really? You know, do do the Greeks Ooh. and Romans have Mount Olympus? 
They, they don't I get don't to go know. there. They no, have, they don't. They have Hades for... If, they have a realm I'm, of the dead, yeah. They have a realm of the dead, but usually that's only if you're pretty special, isn't it, that you get to go there or, or does everyone get to go there? It depends what you read. Again, the tradition is pretty mixed about whether... And, and there are various descriptions of Hades that even include good places and bad places. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, Hades is just the world of the dead, so it's kind of neutral, I yep. guess we'd say. But yeah, I don't actually know what Greek and Roman mm-hmm. mythology... Except that in some traditions, things like emperors become like gods. Yep. So one assumes they might join the pantheon of gods. Yep. But I don't know what the ordinary mortal... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one thing I've noticed in Roman language and Roman writing, mm. and, and similar to Israel, Israelite writing actually, is that there is this pastoral vision, right, where, mm. yes, we've got the city and you work in the city and whatever, but there's also the country house, you know, where you <laughs> kind of go and relax and, and enjoy yourself. And that's very prevalent in um, Roman writing. Yep. Right, where, where, where you do have your, you play farmer a little bit, essentially. Yeah, your pastor, your country house. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, the Jewish ideal, obviously, is every person has their own fig, fig plantation and their own vineyard and they're self-sufficient mm, and all that. Yeah. So, you know, I've always wondered if, yeah, the, the Romans would have understood this idea of eternity in the same way as the Jews. Yeah, I, I mean, without knowing the specifics, I don't think so. And I think the the city image, would it's arresting for us, but I think it would have also been arresting for them. Well, it's a really weird city to begin with. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it's a garden city, so it's again, it's hybrid. We've got a pastiche of images yes, going on here. Yeah. Um, it's so like um, that terminal in Singapore. <laughs> yes, which has beautiful gardens and water things and a butterfly park in it. Yeah, I, so it's a it's a transformed city, but cities in the ancient world were dirty and smelly, That's and, right. um, as some of them are today. <laughs> when I've done like Bible studies on Revelation in churches, often people are quite disappointed it's a city because we have this idea of again the rural ideal mm. where you don't have to deal with too many other people. But <laughs> actually, <laughs> sorry, introverts, the right. uh, <laughs> hell is other people. <laughs> yeah, 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 and apparently heaven too. Yeah. So, well, oh, that's yeah, interesting because obviously you know we 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 like to talk about context and, and first century mm. ideas, but it's helpful to know that even then we we're still reconstructing, uh, as we've yeah. said before, right? You know, we 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 don't know a lot of the time. And but, that can yeah. be the most arresting thing to say. Yeah, it can. And even if we look at the, at the Jewish and Christian tradition, I mean, we're seeing in the New Testament these ideas develop. Mm. I mean, there's really very little to nothing about resurrection in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, explicitly. There's a realm of the dead. There's Sheol, uh, which again I'd say is a neutral place there. It's just where you go. Mm. But there's we really only get explicit understandings of resurrection when we get to the New Testament and obviously with with Jesus' own resurrection being the great giant symbol of what's yeah. to come for everyone else. And even then, it's there's there's a bit of back and forth. And, and mm. like everything, right, the New Testament is a conversation. Yeah. With, with you know, within Christianity. And Paul obviously yeah. <laughs> uses this question of resurrection to great effect to get himself out of jail, quite literally. Yes. At one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I've always found very funny. <laughs> Paul always knows what buttons to push. To, to kind of he, get himself out of particular situations. He was very clever, I suspect infuriating to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we are running out mm. of time, yep. um, but to, to kind of bring it towards some sort of ending or, or last last kind of thing to talk mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about um, 
whether I mean I'm sure you've read um, some of Walter Wink's stuff. Yeah, you know, with, with the spirit of the angels and or the spirits of particular corporations and, and entities yep. and things yep. like that. And, and talking about revelation, you know, we've talked a little bit about evil before, mm-hmm. but but kind of drawing it uh, a finer point on it, if you like, you know, what what does evil look like in the text? Mm, great question. Evil, so it gets personified in these beasts and dragon. There's three of them that make up a little trinity of their own. Um, but then it gets manifest if, if you read something like the Whore of Babylon as an image for Rome and the Roman Empire, al- along with the beasts as well as symbols of Rome, it gets manifest in a basically an institution that is oppressive. Mm-hmm. It, uh, if we think of the Roman, so, and this is where this is offering an alternate view of reality. So. You know, if you've read history of Rome, we often associate it with the Pax Romana, this yep. idea that the Roman Empire brought peace and order to the <laughs> ancient world. Uh, and this author is pointing out that that's on the back of slave labour, violence and warfare, great injustice between the rich and the poor, oppression of any alternate voice, yep. including in this case Christians as a minority threatening alternate voice. So for me, it's a really helpful way to think about evil that takes us beyond the individual. It's, it's too easy in Christian circles to, to point to someone who does something terrible and say that that's one bad person, that's a sinner. I think this challenges us to think about the way evil can work in entire systems. And I mean, in the contemporary world, we're seeing that with things like the Black Lives Matter movement uh-huh. um, and in Australia, in the way that Indigenous people have been treated, yep. that that evil has been manifest in policies and decisions and entire institutional systems that have oppressed and enslaved. And and so that takes us away a bit from finger pointing, but I think as Christians in the modern world requires us to do some deeper reflection about how we participate in different spaces. Yeah. To do some reflection around, I mean, even in the church, we've, been thoroughly exposed that child abuse happened in church ranks yep. so even the church can be a place where evil can be manifest when we aren't being faithful and honest and true to god and that's the thing that's really terrifying for me when i read the text is that revelation kind of makes it out to be easy that you know what's evil and what isn't <laughs> but it's really not you know it's no. so easy to fall complicit into i mean you know there's that classic phrase the banality of evil right mm. and, and you know it can be very mundane. Yeah. And it is very difficult for us to even know, know that it's there unless you've been exposed to it. That's right. There's a great quote in a sermon that was preached in the 1940s by a theologian in England called Tom Torrance. And he did a series of sermons on the book of Revelation, which were later printed, but really reflecting on the Second World War that just happened in Germany. And he says something like, it's one of the great mysteries that evil can become incarnate in apparently Christian guise. And he's talking there about the way the beast in the text mimics the lamb yeah. and tries to look a bit like the lamb and sound like the lamb. And he, he's also talking about Hitler and Germany and how a lot of those you know starting ideas that we now know with the benefit of hindsight were so profoundly evil sounded appealing and maybe even a little bit Christian. Mm. Like, you know, pro-nation, pro-this... Uh-huh they can be wrapped up in a Christian guise in such a way that we fail to recognise them. And that is, that's scary. Yeah, yeah, because well, what that means is we have our own <laughs> marks on the right hand and on, on our foreheads 
that mm. we kind of quite willingly buy into because they look or sound or smell Christian. Yeah. Then, which is yeah, very very challenging. It is challenging, and when I've preached on this aspect of the text, I've I've had people say to me, you, you know, are you saying if I work for this kind of corporation that pollutes the earth and you know, say a big mining company that runs roughshod over cultural sites and stuff that I'm participating in evil. And I'm like, well, I think that's a possibility. <laughs> if so the shoe fits, <laughs> yeah, if, like, the, if the mark lines up. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't want to tell you to quit your job, but there are real implications for it mm. where we put our time and effort and money. Yeah. And, and that's where I think Revelation's message starts getting really pointy. Yeah. Because it does say come out of her. Yeah. You know, d- don't participate. Yep, don't benefit from this. Yeah, unjust system. But but so then, the the inherent challenge there, I think, then is that we can swing in completely the other direction, can't we? What do you mean? And end up being a little bit like um, the Essenes in that sense, where we we sort of let's go off into the mountains and form our own little enclave and ignore the world. Yes, and that's a tempting alternative at one level because it's simple. Yeah, if we just retreat into ourselves and have nothing to do with the world. But I, I, well, it's just not a realistic option for most Christians these days. Um, Unless you're literally going to join a religious order of some kind. Or a cult. Or a cult, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) There you go. You'll be reading Revelation either way, so, you know, it's all good. Yeah. So it does require us to work in those grey areas and to do that constant discernment. Mm. And for me, at a very real level, that comes down to where I shop. Yeah what clothing and food suppliers I support in terms of child labour and slave labour and, I mean, all sorts of everyday decisions, which quite frankly sometimes get exhausting. Well, that's exactly Trying to keep on top to of it. Yeah. Um, it's really tiring. Yeah, it is. But it's about being informed and actually that's where the ethics of it hit the road, I think. Mm. Um, so, you know, do your research. Yep. You know, support local if you can. You yep. Know, um, Especially here in Australia, you know, do do your due diligence in you know researching things like native title, yeah, you know, indigenous um, rights, and and you know, and all these things because there's a whole. One of the things that the the events of the last few months have really kind of shown to me here in 2020 mm-hmm. is that we don't know a lot of stuff <laughs> that we should know. Yeah, yes, and we've been blind to a lot right. of injustice. And and willfully in a lot of cases, but yep. when we start realizing just how bad things are it's important for us to, to learn that so that we can work to correct it. Yeah. It's, I mean, slow, pain, <laughs> painstakingly slow work. It is. And some it might be picking one part of your life to start doing that work in, whether yeah. it's your grocery shopping or your clothing shopping or your where you invest your money, where your super's invested. Is it invested in mining companies and oil companies and other Yeah, that's something most people wouldn't even have thought about. Yeah, and, and it's hard because sometimes finding that information out is actually quite difficult. Mm. But I think that's part of Revelation's call to us is to, again, that non-participation, come out, don't, don't particularly don't financially benefit from the suffering of others, mm. which is exactly the dynamics of Rome. And, and present that alternative, I think, is, yeah. is another thing that Revelation kind of hints at. It, it's not as explicit about it, I suspect, but mm-hmm. it does hint at that. Yeah. That you know, having that alternative voice is important. Yeah. And yeah. people are going to hate it. <laughs> you might be murdered and left on the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for, for what, witnessing. Three and a half days or yeah. whatever it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
And it also messes with our category of witnessing a bit, which is obviously has a verbal component, but in this text, witnessing is as much about what you do as about what you say. So that's also a pointy end, I think, that you can go to church and say all the right Christian things, <laughs> but if your deeds and investments and other things aren't aligning with that, mm. you've only got half the message. I think. Well, it, uh, to, to kind of close this off, <laughs> and, and actually, funnily enough, I'll step out of Revelation, but it reminds me of the story where you know the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and it's like, mm. you know, what, what do I need? And Jesus is like, oh, well, just give up, give up all your stuff. Yeah, it's like too hard. Yeah, uh, oh, and he, he went away disappointed, you know, mm. and, and I think that's where a lot of us kind of end up falling because it is too hard. Yeah, yeah, but it's not a reason not to make a step in the mm. right direction. But yeah. No, absolutely. Well, thanks, Robin. That, that's been really, um, yeah, really helpful, really enlightening and, and quite a <laughs> quite a challenging uh, yeah, message for us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed our conversations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And um, so we, we'll we'll have a link, obviously, to Robin's profile um, on the website, so you can go and have a look at, you know, buy her book, <laughs> read it, um, and, and and enjoy, you know, um, link, have a look at her podcast as well. And uh, so thank you, Robin. And uh, yeah, see you all next time. Thanks. <laughs>